be in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 this morning. It reads, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are gathered here this morning as, as one body of believers, Lord, and we are pleased to, te- to hear your word, God, that we can hear the very words spoken uh, by our Lord. Um, as we sit under it, Lord, we just ask that your Holy Spirit is at work in our minds and in our hearts to give us understanding and wisdom and uh, that we are enjoying your word. We can, we can find joy in what we hear, Lord. Uh, as this passage reads, it's good for everything we need, Lord. Um, whether we need to be disciplined or uh, corrected, anything we need, your word provides. And we thank you for that. Uh, as Jordan speaks, Lord, I pray that you speak through him and give us better understanding of of what this passage says, and just let us go in depth that we know you better and that uh, we can proclaim your word. And as we've been learning about the church, that it builds us up and, and brings us together to you and to each other. We thank you and we love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are going to be continuing this week to look at the foundation of the church. As we gathered last week, we talked about the phrase or the title of what we would consider the foundation of the church, and we titled it Sola Scriptura. If you remember correctly, we we learned that Sola Scriptura literally means Scripture alone. Scripture plus nothing is the foundation of the church, and Scripture alone holds the truth about God, about man, about sin, about salvation, eternity, creation, and a list of other things as well. And as we approach it this morning, continuing to examine it, I offer the same warning. As you listen today, listen well. As Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. So as you hear these words this morning, do not just allow them to be processed in your brain. You hear someone speaking, you recognize the language, but take these words to heart. Because as I said last week, There is a lot of trembling, a lot of fear that I approach this with because the concept of sola scriptura in the church is the most attacked belief that we face today. Last week we learned that there were two aspects of sola scriptura, the first being the authority of scripture, and that's what we examined last week, and this week we're going to be looking at the second aspect, the sufficiency of scripture. Just to give you a reminder of the things that we did discuss last week, we talked about the authority of Scripture as the right that Scripture has to command something and then demand that you obey those commands. In essence, the Scripture, the authority of Scripture, is discussing its right to say, thus says the Lord, and then hold you accountable for the way you hear and obey or the way you disbelieve and disobey. And we learned that there are three aspects to the authority of Scripture. The first one was inspiration. In our passage that we read this morning, Nate said, All Scripture is breathed out by God. We talked about that phrase, theonoustos. 
literally expired out of the lungs of God. God's very breath delivered on the pages of Scripture through the authors He inspired to write it down. The writers of Scripture, we said, were inspired in everything they wrote, whether it was law, doctrine, genealogy, history, poetry, prophecy, psalms, epistles, whatever it was, gospels, whatever they wrote, they were writing the very words of God. And we said the inspiration of Scripture carries with it the effect that whatever the writers of Scripture said, they were God's words in such a way that if you disbelieve or disobey them, you're disbelieving and disobeying God Himself. The second aspect of the authority of Scripture we looked at was inerrancy. Remember, we talked about this is a word that people say all the time, and usually it's only in reference to the Bible, either saying they believe it or denying it. Um, and we looked at the definition of inerrancy, literally means without error. And we defined what we meant by that. We didn't mean that Scripture may have spelling errors or grammar errors. We, we, don't, we believe that. That's okay. But what we said is that the inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture does not affirm anything contrary to fact. It is not deceptive, and it contains no falsehood. It's true in all the matters it addresses. Finally, we looked at the infallibility of Scripture. And we, we made a distinction between inerrancy and infallibility. Inerrancy says it has no error. Infallibility means it is impossible for it to have error. We discussed the truth that the infallibility of Scripture is wrapped up in the infallibility of God Himself. Romans chapter 3 says, Let God be true, though every man were a liar. We visited Hebrews, where it says that when God made a promise, in order to show to the ones who received the covenant that He was certain, He made a promise by Himself, because two unchangeable things. A covenant is unchangeable, unbreakable, and then also it is impossible for God to lie. So we've seen that since the Scripture is inspired by God, He's the author, and it is impossible for Him to be in error, and God is infallible. If God has breathed the Scriptures, then the Scriptures are also infallible. Putting all these concepts together, we summed it up by saying, and this is a third time that we've already said this this morning, all the words of Scripture are God's words, so that to disbelieve or disobey those words is to disbelieve or disobey God Himself. The next aspect we're going to examine this morning of Sola Scriptura is sufficiency. You see, there are those who are willing to affirm, okay, the Scripture is an authority. It has the right to command. It has the right to demand our obedience. But Scripture is actually unclear. And we need something to come alongside Scripture. Maybe a priest or a bishop or a pope or a council, or a confession of faith. We need that to come in and give us additional authority, or inspiration, or interpretation, or application on top of the Scripture. So the Scripture isn't sufficient by itself. We need other things with it. There are others who say, well, the Scripture does contain authority, and it is authority over us, but it isn't really necessary to know God. They'll say things like, you don't honestly believe God is going to send someone to hell for not having a Bible and not believing in Jesus. If they didn't have a Bible, how are they going to believe in Jesus? God's not going to hold them responsible for that. So basically what they're saying is, the Scripture is not necessary and it is not sufficient. They say things like, you can live a good life, you believe in God, do the best you can, and that's really all you need. You don't really need the Scripture. It's not necessary. 
And even further still, there are those who believe the Bible is not enough, that we have to add on to it traditions and customs. And they claim these traditions have come from Jesus, who gave them to Peter, who has delivered them to us. And if we don't have these traditions and these commandments, we're not obeying God. The Scripture is not sufficient by itself. We have others who would say that the Bible is insufficient in revealing everything God wants man to know concerning himself, salvation, faith, and life. So we need to add some other books on it. They, just some examples of these is the Book of Mormon, the Watchtower Bible Society, A Course in Miracles, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, and a list of books that you could even go to the local Christian bookstore and find. We disagree with all of these ideas by affirming the truth of the sufficiency of Scripture alone. So if you took notes last week, or uh, maybe you want to go back and listen to it and jot these notes down, last week where there were so many points, and it's going to seem weird, we're starting this talk today with point number two. Last week we had, number one, the authority of Scripture alone. Today we'll begin with number two, the sufficiency of Scripture alone. When we're discussing the idea of the sufficiency of Scripture, the question being asked is this. Is the Bible all we need for faith and obedience, and can it be clearly understood? Is the Bible all we need for faith and obedience, and can it be clearly understood? Or one might say, okay, maybe the Bible's in authority, but is it enough in itself to teach us all we need to know? concerning faith and obedience. So as we are examining the sufficiency of Scripture, this is the definition we are going to use. The words of Scripture contain all that God intended to reveal at all stages of redemptive history, and the Scripture is now complete and contains everything necessary for faith and obedience so that even the simple and unlearned are able to understand. That's a huge definition. We're going to break it down together. Before we get into that definition, I just want to visit what our confession of faith says. It, it puts it this way. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. It goes on to say, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith in life, is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, to which nothing is to be added at any time, either by new revelation of the Spirit or by the traditions of men. Basically what they're saying is Scripture alone is sufficient for everything we need concerning God, salvation, faith, life, and obedience. When we study the sufficiency of Scripture this morning, we're going to be examining three areas. Number one, necessity. Number two, clarity. And number three, it seems weird to include this in a talk on sufficiency, but we're going to address sufficiency by itself. So necessity, clarity, and sufficiency. The first area we want to define is necessity. So when we're considering the necessity of Scripture, we're going to do the same thing we did last week. We're going to give what it does not mean and then look at the Scriptures to see what it does mean. So the first thing we're going to do is necessity negatively defined. The first thing is we do not mean that Scripture is necessary for all things. 
As we mentioned last week, you're not going to go to Exodus chapter 13 and find the quadratic equation. It's not there. You're not going to go to Isaiah chapter 12 and find the exact number of oranges to make a pint of freshly squeezed orange juice. It isn't there. The scripture is not necessary for those things. And there are those who will challenge you and say, well, the scripture doesn't have this, so I guess we don't need it for anything else. That is not what we mean by the necessity of scripture. We do not mean that it is necessary for an exhaustive list of ideas and actions. That's not what we mean. Secondly, we do not mean that scripture is necessary for one to acknowledge the existence of God. Romans 1 tells us the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Psalms 19.1 adds, The heavens declare the glory of God. So we do not mean that Scripture is necessary to acknowledge the existence of a divine, eternal creator. Why do you think even amongst pagan tribes in the middle of jungles or in the middle of the wilderness, they have a concept of a supreme being? It's because you look outside, you see the creation of the world, the creation of the universe, and you say someone had to make this. Even those who deny the existence of a creator who would call themselves atheists believe that the whole universe evolved from an eternally existent matter. They affirm a supreme, eternal, powerful, existing substance. That's because it is necessarily revealed in creation. So you do not, we do not mean that it, without the Bible you cannot believe that there is a God. That's not what we mean by the necessity of Scripture. Thirdly, we do not mean that one must know all things in Scripture perfectly in order to know God and be born again by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So we're not intending to communicate that it's necessary. You have to know everything the Scripture says about everything in order to be saved. If I ask everyone in here one by one to come in front of the assembly here and give a small treatise on the hypostatic union, could you do that? Most of us probably not. Does that mean you're not born again? No, it does not. That is not what we mean by the necessity of Scripture. We do not say, unless you know everything here, you cannot know God and be born again. That is not what we mean. So, what do we mean? We're now going to address necessity positively defined. We mean, number one, that Scripture is necessary for knowing the character of God. While creation gives evidence of His existence, of His power, of His deity, His covenantal love, His holy wrath, His patience, His purposes in sending Jesus, and all that He would want man to know about who He is and how He exists is only contained within the Scripture. Therefore, for one to truly know God, they have to turn to the pages of Scripture. That's what we mean when we say Scripture alone is sufficient in that it is necessary. The second thing we mean is that Scripture is necessary for the knowledge of the gospel. Now, when we say gospel, you remember our pastor preached on this several weeks ago, and he told us the word gospel was literally evangelion, and it means good news. We know that this good news is that Jesus Christ has taken the place of mediator between God and man. 
He has come, been born of a virgin, and he has now been delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification, and by faith in him alone, we can have forgiveness of our sins and know God. The good news that Jesus saves sinners, gives them the Holy Spirit through which the love of God is poured into our hearts and that he brings them along a process the Bible calls sanctification with the goal of one day making them completely perfect as he is, transforming them into his own image. That idea, that concept is only found in the pages of Scripture. You can go outside and say, yes, someone had to make this, but you cannot go outside, look at the clouds and say, oh, God became a man and gave his life to take away my sins. So when we say scripture is necessary for the knowledge of the gospel, that's what we mean. Paul said this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He's writing to Timothy, and we read part of it this morning. We're going to read all of it now. Starting in 2 Timothy 3 verse 14, the apostle Paul says this. But as for you, talking to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul did not tell Timothy, remember what you learned in science class, how you learned the knowledge that is able to make you wise for salvation. He said, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, the scripture, and that is the only thing that's going to make you wise unto salvation. Paul says this in Romans 10, and our pastor preached on this several weeks ago, talking about the purpose of, a church, of the church in evangelism. Romans 10, beginning verse 14, Paul says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So it's concluded here that an understanding of the good news, the gospel about Jesus Christ, comes only through the scripture. The scripture is absolutely necessary for a knowledge of the gospel. Thirdly, we mean that the scripture is necessary for maintaining spiritual growth. If God has literally breathed out the scriptures, theonustos, expired from his lungs, and they are profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, complete equipping so that we may not lack anything, then it is safe to conclude that scripture is necessary to grow in the faith. The verse we read this morning again, he says, we just talked about all the characteristics of the scripture. It is profitable teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In 2 Peter chapter 1, the apostle writes, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, and like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, and some versions add, of the word, that by it you may grow up into salvation. 
So he says, the word of the Lord is forever. This is the good news that has been preached to you. And now put away all this sin and long for that pure spiritual milk of the word. Because that's how you are going to grow up into salvation. Now it's important to remember that when he's talking about this process of growth, he doesn't mean you're not saved, you're a little bit more saved, you're really getting closer there, finally you've grown up to salvation. We know from the testimony of Scripture that when it talks about growing in salvation, we're talking about sanctification. We're really talking about spiritual maturity, spiritual growth. And this process, according to the Apostle Peter, comes through longing and studying and holding fast to the written word. I think this is the fourth thing that we mean by the necessity of Scripture. We mean that Scripture is necessary for the knowledge of God's will. I want to be really careful here because in our area of the Bible Belt, the phrase God's will is thrown around very flippantly. You see, people, most people speak of being in the direct center of God's will. I just want to be in the center of God's will. And they treat it like, or they communicate it like, it is spending a lifelong time of playing hide-and-seek with God. God has something for you over there. Good luck finding it. If you find it, praise God. If, you don't, if you're not happy, you don't feel contentment, things aren't going right, you must be out of the center of God's will. I want to define it correctly according to Scripture so that it's not understood. When speaking of God's will this way... We mean to speak of God's desires for His people or God's commands to His people. God has given commands because He desires you to obey those commands. In Psalm 119, the psalmist says this, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart who also do no wrong, but walk in His ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways might be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. And I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. The idea here is that to be in God's will, the psalmist will continually meditate, fix his eyes upon, hold fast, walk in, seek, keep diligently the written word, given specifically at this time in commandments, precepts, laws, and statutes. Most people, however, when speaking of the will of God, they mean God's specific plan for their life, where they should work, who they should marry. What color pants should they put on this morning? And we don't want to confuse those two. God does have a secret will. His secret will belongs to Him. The Bible says the secret things belong to the Lord. I can tell you what Romans 3.17 says, but I cannot tell you how traffic is going to be in the morning on your way to work. 
That's part of God's plan, part of God's purpose, part of His secret plan, and we cannot know it. But when we say that the Scripture is necessary for the knowledge of God's will, what we mean is that man, in order to obey God and do what he has commanded or what he has desired, must necessarily turn to Scripture. If you want to know what God wants you to do, read the Bible. You want to know, does God want you to share the gospel with somebody? Absolutely, read the Bible. Does God want you to love your wife? Absolutely, read the Bible. Does God want you to live an example of godliness in front of your co-workers? Absolutely, read the Bible. If you want to know God's will, it is necessary for you to read the Bible. Summing up this idea, we read in our confession of faith the following. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal Himself and to declare His will unto His church, and afterward for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh, the malice of Satan, and the world to commit the same wholly unto writing, which maketh the holy scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God revealing His will unto His people being now ceased. How many times have you heard a pastor get up and say, the world is yet to see what God would do with a man who's perfectly in his will. That's false. Everyone here is perfectly in God's will in that we are talking about his plan for you. Not all of us are perfectly in God's will of his revealed desires and commandments for mankind. So the scripture is absolutely necessary to know God, his character, the gospel, and his will. So now we move on to the clarity of Scripture. Number two, the clarity of Scripture. And we'll begin also by clarity negatively defined. So what do we not mean by clarity? We do not mean that all things in Scripture are equally clear and easily understood. Using an example from earlier, if I ask everyone to come up here one by one and give us a small presentation on the hypostatic union, most people would not be able to do that. Because that's not something that you're just going to read the Gospel of John and say, huh, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. He said, the Spirit's going to be sent in my name. It says, the Word became flesh. The union of Christ in God and in the flesh must be the hypostatic union. That's not going to happen. That's not what we mean. Or if I ask you to explain the symbolism of the great image that Daniel saw in his prophecy, how many of you could do that? Not many. I don't even know that I would want to get up here and try that. The reason for that is, is because not all Scripture is equally clear and easily understood. So we do not mean that, that by clarity. Secondly, we do not mean that it is impossible for Scripture to be misinterpreted. This is one of the major arguments made by Roman Catholics today. And if you know someone who's a Roman Catholic, they do not believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. And if you tell them, well, Scripture is clear, this is the argument they will say to you. Well, if the Bible is so clear and so easy to be understood, 
how come you as a Reformed Baptist disagree about the nature of salvation with a Southern Baptist? Scripture must not be that clear. Or they might say, okay, you consider yourself a child of the Reformation. How come Lutherans and Presbyterians baptize babies according to Scripture and you believe that that's heresy according to Scripture? Scripture must not be clear. What would you say to that? The answer is that this is a great misunderstanding of what we mean by the clarity of Scripture. Despite being clear, Scripture can be misunderstood and misinterpreted. If you've read any of the letters to the editor in the Telegraph Times the past three weeks, you've seen an example of a misuse and misinterpretation of Scripture. We saw this last week. We read in Peter's epistle. In 2 Peter chapter 3, he writes this, And count, pa count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. The issue here is not with the clarity of Scripture. The issue is a mishandling of Scripture by lawless, careless people who are in error. Just because one mishandles or misinterprets Scripture does not mean that it is not clear in the way we say Scripture is clear. And I caution you, everyone in here as the church, to these two things. Number one, be on your guard of your own misuse and misinterpretation of Scripture. If you're saying something that's totally off the wall, 2016, you're the first person to come up with this. This is a new idea. It's wrong. Completely wrong. Number two, be careful who you associate with in forums in which it appears you are endorsing people who misinterpret or misapply or mishandle the word. There's a concept that is used in the legal realm of being guilty by association. And it should be noted that there is a difference in endorsing someone by standing side by side with them and preaching and then meeting with them, trying to teach them the errors that they are making with handling the scripture. So those are the two things I caution you about. And the apostle does as well. He says, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of, law, of lawless people and lose your own stability. So by the clarity of Scripture, we do not mean that it is impossible for Scripture to be misinterpreted or mishandled. In direct relation to this point, we do not mean that the church plays no role in teaching how to properly handle the scriptures. See, the Roman Catholic who I was just, uh, just discussing would say, since it's possible for you and this guy to agree, we need some authority that tells us this is absolutely what it means, and we just follow that authority. That authority is the church. And we would say, no, that authority is not the church. But what we do believe despite our disagreement about the church having authority over the Scripture or the church having the sole right to interpret the Scripture, we believe that the church's role, as we have seen in the past weeks, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Paul told Timothy, Take what I have entrusted to you and teach to faithful men who will be able to teach other people. He didn't say, 
go to the Apple Festival and pass out New Testaments and let people figure it out on their own. That's not what he said. He said the job of the church is to teach other people who can teach other people. It is our job to take the Scripture and teach people how to rightly handle it and interpret it. Jesus commanded His disciples in the Great Commission, go and make more disciples, and that's not where He stopped. He said, teaching them to obey everything that I have told you. I've delivered to you teaching. I've taught you how to understand it. I've answered your questions. Now go teach other people. Teach them how to understand it. Answer their questions. That is the role of the church. And that is the great task of the local church. This is why in our church we teach hermeneutics. How to interpret the Bible. You're not going to see Paul or I get up here and pick one verse and spend two hours preaching on how that verse affects you and Sally down in the workplace. We preach expository preaching and expository teaching. We talk about the importance of family worship. We talk about the idea of systematic and covenant theology. Not because these things are necessary for knowledge unto salvation, but they are necessary for knowledge of how to handle the Word. And if the Scripture is going to be clear, we have to first understand how to handle it. The next thing we do not mean is that the Spirit is unnecessary for understanding the Scriptures. Some will go and read the Bible. I had a chemistry teacher in high school, read the Bible through every year. He'd say, well, I mean, it's an interesting book, but I don't get anything out of it. What he means is, I felt no special sense of spiritual illumination when I read the Bible. The Bible itself makes it very clear that it is a spiritual book, and it is only understood by the assistance of the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians. These things, talking about the writings of Scripture, the teachings of the Gospel, these things God has revealed to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that, here's the purpose, that we receive the Holy Spirit, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Jesus himself said in John chapter 6, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. John 6, 63. So we do not mean that anyone can pick up the Bible and just, Oh, yeah, this is what it means. You're not going to pass out Bibles, like I said, at the Apple Festival and a six-year-old kid come in next Sunday and explain the hypostatic union to us just from reading the Gospel of John. Because it is the Spirit that comes and gives Understanding The Bible is a spiritual book and it must be understood through the Spirit. That's what we do not mean by clarity. What do we mean when we say the Scripture is clear? We mean, number one, that all things necessary for salvation, obedience, and love for the saints is clearly set down in Scripture so that even the simple and unlearned can understand them and obey them. We see examples of this throughout the Scripture. One of the great passages about family worship in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses writes this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. By simply hearing the scriptures read and taught, Moses expected men to understand clearly enough to be able to teach their children. What Moses was saying was clear enough that the men could repeat that and the children would understand. So, all things necessary for salvation, obedience, faith, love for the saints is clearly set down in Scripture so everyone can understand. The Psalms bear witness to this as well. Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Psalm 119.130 says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. The passage we read earlier in 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. He's already learned it. He's already believed it. He says, Knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul had clearly witnessed and understood either by seeing it or by hearing it from Timothy's mother and grandmother that Timothy from the time he was a child was taught the scriptures and it was clear enough that he understood it and it had made him wise unto salvation. Our confession sums up this idea like this. All scripture, all things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet, those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or another that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use of ordinary means, may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. Scripture is clear. If you want to know how to be born again, you want to know God, you want to know how to live out a life of faith and obedience, turn to Scripture. It is clear. And so far, we've examined the two aspects of what we have defined as the sufficiency of Scripture, but now I want to define sufficiency on its own as it relates to Scripture. So number three, the third thing is the sufficiency of Scripture. And once again, we will start by defining it negatively. What do we not mean by the sufficiency of Scripture. Despite the fear of sounding over-repetitive, if you read the book of Philippians, Paul says, I, I don't want to say this again, but here it is again. Galatians 1, I know I just said this, but here it is again because we don't like to pay attention and we can't retain things. So let me say this again. We do not mean that Scripture is an exhaustive concordance or encyclopedia of all things. That is not what we mean when we say Scripture is sufficient. As I said, Scripture is not sufficient for learning the quadratic formula. Scripture does not tell us the name of Jeremiah's second cousin twice removed on his mother's side. It's not sufficient for that. The Scripture doesn't tell us how old David was when he took his first step or said his first word. It's not sufficient in those areas. But just because the Bible lacks this information, it doesn't mean that it is not sufficient. You're going to run into people who say, well, doesn't the Bible say that if everything Jesus did and said was written down, the world couldn't even contain the books? 
say, yeah, it does say that. Well, so that means we don't really know everything Jesus said and did. So what if we find something that's contrary to what you believe? Doesn't that mean the scripture isn't sufficient? In essence, they are asking, how do you believe in the sufficiency of scripture? This is due to a misunderstanding of what we mean by sufficiency. We do not mean an exhaustive encyclopedia of everything that Jesus said and did or of everything that the apostles said and did. What do we mean? Sufficiency positively defined. We do mean that everything necessary for the knowledge of God, for salvation and obedience, is found clearly in the Scripture. As we have read at least seven times today so far, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture, every bit, all of it, there's no exception, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that, here's the purpose, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Our emphasis this time, we looked at the words Scripture and God breathed last week. And this week I want us to notice the Greek word here that we render in English as complete. The Greek word here is artios. And it means perfect, sufficient, complete, prepared to function sufficiently in the immediate present. In the here and now. So what we believe here is that the Holy Spirit, God himself, is saying these words through the Apostle Paul. And he's saying, Scripture alone is God-breathed in such a way that it is completely sufficient for the believer. Number one, to become a believer and then to be trained in righteousness and equipped for every good work without fail. If there's something God expects of you, then it is contained in Scripture the Westminster Catechism, what does it say? What do the scriptures principally teach? They principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duties God requires of man. It's sufficient to equip us for believing in God and then for every good work that he expects of us. This is a very bold statement. Do you realize the enormity of what the Apostle Paul is saying here? He's saying everything God wants you to know about himself. Everything. God wants you to know about himself, about salvation, about life, faith, obedience, eternity. Every matter of faith and practice that you can think of is found sufficiently in the Bible. How many of you read your Bible before you came here this morning? If you believed in the sufficiency of Scripture, that this is really what God had said and it was sufficient for everything we need, we would be in it more. This passage, this truth, the sufficiency of Scripture beckons us to be a people of the book. God has revealed himself in a book. I hear Christians say all the time, I just don't like to read. Too bad. God revealed himself in a book. Read it. If you want to know God, guess what you're going to have to do? Read. If you want to know how to be born again, guess what you're going to have to do? Read. If you want to know what God expects of you, how he expects you to treat other people, what he expects of the church, how he expects you to obey him, you're going to have to read. So don't claim to be a Christian. Don't claim to be a follower of Jesus if you're not reading the book. The scripture is sufficient. The prophet Isaiah was told this statement from God himself. Isaiah 55. These are the words of God. He says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, 
but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. As we discussed last week, Jesus has promised to build his church on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the scripture alone, the writings of scripture. And the words which God promised would go out and accomplish his purpose are contained in the scripture. And it is completely sufficient. Now for those of you who don't enjoy lecture style preaching, and you're off over there, I lost you 30 minutes ago, let me bring you back in. Give you some application. Why does this matter for you? What is he talking about? I'm not a theologian. I'm not a preacher. I don't care about that. Give me something I can chew on. Here is something you can chew on. As we mentioned last week, there's no attack of the Christian faith that does not begin and strike its first blow to the authority of Scripture. And I can boldly say, secondly, there's no attack that doesn't follow that, that punches its second blow to the face of the sufficiency of Scripture. This is evidenced by the countless number of Christians. Notice I have the scare quotes there. The Christians who are so called by the world's standards, who see the scripture alone as insufficient, unclear, or unnecessary. They ride bicycles, wear black and white shirts and ties and name tags, and they're knocking on your neighbor's door, telling them the Bible's not enough. You know they carry a book, it's about this size, it's orange, and it says, what does the Bible really teach? You can't understand it on your own, but guess what? We have the truth for you here. They have a book with them called the Book of Mormon. They believe that the Bible has some truth in it, but Joseph Smith received a special revelation from God, delivered on golden tablets just to him. He was the only one who saw them. He was the only one who read them. He was the only one who recorded them. And if you follow him, you'll know what God wants you to know. So we need Scripture plus the Book of Mormon, to understand what God really wants you to know and what He expects of you. Others gather in a kingdom hall once a week and call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses, the very witnesses of Jehovah Himself. And they carry a Bible that they have translated and changed and adjusted to fit their own ideas. You see, their founder in the early 1800s, his name was Charles Russell, and he denied teachings of Scripture like eternal punishment, the Holy Spirit, the deity of Jesus. And this led him to say, I think I'm the only one that God has blessed with the ability to interpret the Bible. So I'm going to take the Bible, I'm going to interpret it for you, I'm going to give it to you, and we're going to call it the New Living Translation. It's new. It's living. The Word of God is living, right? And I've made it new for you so you can understand it. If you want to know God, you have to read this Bible. But even this Bible isn't sufficient, so we're going to start a society. And after several name changes, we know it as the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. So they'll give you a Bible, but then they'll also give you a copy of their magazine so that you can read it and properly understand the Bible. What they are saying, Scripture by itself is insufficient. You need us to help you. There are those who follow a relativistic, subjective, New Age ideology and it's labeled Christianity. And they have taken Christianity and said, here's the Bible, it's insufficient, let's write a new book, and we're going to call it A Course in Miracles. And basically, reality is subjective. If you don't want something to be true, just think it. It won't be true. You can work miracles with the power of your mind. That's what God has for you. There are others who follow the Pope, 
And they believe what is known as the traditions handed down by the apostles and elders, delivered directly to the Holy Father, who alone is the authority over the church. They affirm the, they affirm the authority of what we consider Scripture. They add some books to that. But then they say the only infallible rule of interpreting the Bible is the Pope and the councils. In fact, they're teaching their children catechisms that say things like this. The task of interpreting the Word of God authentically has been entrusted solely to the magisterium of the church, that is, to the Pope and to the bishops in communion with him. Even worse, in their catechism, referring to the gospel, it states this, I would not believe in the gospel had not the authority of the Catholic Church already moved me. Spirit's not necessary as long as we have the church. That's what they believe. They tell people that the God-breathed words of Scripture are not for them to understand. Here's the Bible. Yeah, it was given by God. You can't understand it. Come to Mass every Sunday, and the bishop will explain it to you. There are still others who belong to the largest religion in the world who say the Bible, if it ever contained any truth at all, has been contaminated and corrupted by man. But we have a perfectly revealed word from God delivered to Muhammad himself. And if you learn Arabic, you can read it in the language that Allah has given it. And then you can know the truth. What's even worse, I think, is there exists today a group of people calling themselves not just Christians but evangelicals who dismiss the sufficiency of Scripture for the sake of tradition and emotion. They gather week after week and they hear what God has spoken in His Word and then they just leave and go to lunch. But then sometimes they'll gather and someone will play an emotional song and this person starts crying. The Scripture, mind you, hasn't been opened at all. And then this person starts crying. And then someone will stand up in the back and start shouting. And then 15 people are crying. And then the altar, as our pastor mentioned, the steps that lead to the platform, is just full of people. Just weeping and sobbing and praising God. And after about 18 verses of the same song, the pastor will get up and he'll just stand here in silence. He'll look over the crowd. He'll say, this is the, I've heard this quoted in churches in this county. I believe this is sufficient enough service. And the word of God has never been opened. You know what he's saying? The scripture alone is not sufficient. We have added something to it and you have experienced God this morning. And you haven't experienced God because his book, where he has revealed himself, the way he speaks, has never been opened. And then what really sickens me is you'll go home and the next morning on Facebook, on your news feed, you'll see 17 people from across the county say, the Lord showed up this morning. No, he didn't. Whatever that was, it was not the Lord revealed in Scripture. When the Lord shows up, people are on their face, afraid, repenting of their sin understanding the severity of the wrath of God and how they have failed Him. That's what happens. They don't go back to sleeping with their boyfriends and girlfriends the next day. They don't go back to swearing and lying and cheating on their taxes and lying on their time cards. They don't do that. They don't go back to their traditions. I was even in a conversation with someone the other day who claims to be an evangelical who said this is a direct quote. Well, I know that's what the Bible says, but God also gave you common sense. Are you serious? 
What they're saying is you as a disciple of Christ should elevate your own rationale above the God-breathed words of Scripture. If Scripture says it and your common sense contradicts it, follow your common sense. Because God gave that to you. No, God gave us Scripture. God gave us breathed out words from Him for us to follow. And they are sufficient. Why would I go somewhere else when considering what God's will is? Other than the pages of Scripture. Why would I go somewhere else when considering the proper way in which to worship? Why would I go somewhere else when I'm trying to learn how to build up the church, how to love my wife, love and teach my children, how to lead them? Why would I go anywhere else when considering how to live my life, how to speak, how to act, how to pray, how to share the gospel? With whom should I go out sharing the gospel with? With whom should I endorse? With whom should I put my name beside? Why would I go anywhere but Scripture? Scripture alone is sufficient. There's a group of people among this evangelical, self-identifying crowd who gather every week in small groups and they have a time of prophecy, revelation. Sit in a circle. Guys, we're going to pray. And as God reveals himself to you or gives you a word from someone, just go ahead and share that. Praise God. And then they'll pray. And everybody will sit in quiet. Somebody sitting over here will say, I just have a word for you, Brother Nate. God is telling me, man, God is telling me that he has the best for you. And, and this week is going to be rough, but next week is going to be better. And you don't need to worry about your mom's health because God, man, God is going to do something great. And what they're saying is the scripture isn't sufficient for God to speak to you, but I am. God has given me a word for you that he was unwilling to give to you directly or unwilling to put in scripture. So just trust me. It's not good enough to gather and discuss the Scripture and pray and let the Holy Spirit speak through the Scripture. They need special revelation. Why do they need this special revelation? Because deep down, they deny the sufficiency of written Scripture. They deny it. Now, you say you believe that, but I want to challenge you to that. Do you really believe the sufficiency of Scripture? Does your life reflect a belief in the sufficiency of Scripture? Or is there a consistent elevation of your own traditions on par with the Scripture? You say, well, I know the Scripture says this, but I mean, I've just been doing this forever. I don't really think it's that wrong, so it has to be all right. There are some men here in this congregation who are bursting with passion to speak out against sin in our county about the holiness of God. And we would be so eager just for a place to do this that we would be willing to stand beside of people who would say the King James Bible is the only revealed, inspired, inerrant, infallible, clear, necessary, sufficient Word of God. What they're saying is, my Bible is sufficient, yours is not. They are denying the sufficiency of Scripture. Worse than that, they say anathema to anyone who disagrees with that. What, what Bible you preach out of? I've, I've, when I was traveling around, when I first went to India, and I was going to different local churches, that's the job of the local church, to send missionaries. When I was traveling to different local churches, I went to one, a church that I had grown up in, spent 14 years of my life there in that church. And I approached the pastor, and I said, Listen, God has given me the opportunity to go to India for six months with this mission board. I'm going to be going there sharing the gospel with one of the most unreached people groups in the world. And I'm asking local churches if they would allow me the opportunity to present 
this mission trip and raise funds. You know what he said? What kind of Bible is that in your hand right there? He said, this is an English standard version. He said, you're not welcome to speak in my church. We're talking about a denial of scriptural sufficiency. There's no middle ground there. Finally, as we did last week, I want to end by discussing what did Jesus believe about the sufficiency of Scripture? In Matthew 15, our pastor preached this several weeks ago, and I just want to go through it very quickly. Matthew 15, starting in verse number 1. It says, Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And these words of Jesus to the Pharisees and the scribes, we're going to notice these things. I could preach a whole sermon. I know everybody is hot. If, you're, if it's as stuffy in here as I think it is, so I won't preach a whole other sermon on this. But I just want to give you this outline. Write it down. Study it. Look at it yourself. See what Jesus believed about the sufficiency of Scripture. Number one, this is the first thing we notice, what Jesus says here. Jesus gives no response for breaking a tradition given by man. He saw no authority in the traditions of the Pharisees over his disciples. He didn't say, you know what, that's a good point, guys. I'll talk to him about that. Hey, by the way, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? He didn't say that. He went right into a correction of their mentality and said, those traditions have no authority over my disciples. He'd done this in other places by telling the Pharisees, I am Lord of the Sabbath. If my disciples pluck grain on the Sabbath, they're allowed to do that because I made it for them. Secondly, Jesus recognized that those who elevate tradition over the written word are also relaxing the commandments of God. People have an idea that here are the commandments and we can add our traditions beside them. But that's never what happens. What happens when we bring our traditions on par with the Word of God? We start suppressing the Word of God and the commandments of God. You see that exemplified like the phrase I said earlier. Someone said to me, well, I know the Bible says that, but God also gave you common sense. The third thing we notice is that Jesus rebukes those who make void the Word of God for sake of their tradition. In Jesus' mind, Scripture voids tradition. Not the other way around. If you're doing something that is contrary to Scripture, it's not okay to write it off as a cultural commandment and say, well, I can do it anyways. Scripture voids tradition. Number four, Jesus tells us that a denial of the sufficiency of Scripture is an issue of false worship. You see, when one turns away from Scripture as the sufficient and authoritative rule over the church, they add traditions or other books or special revelation. What they're trying to do is be self-righteous. Or what they're trying to do is worship an idol. 
Jesus quotes a prophecy from Isaiah saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So one who denies the sufficiency of Scripture is denying the goodness of God by saying He has not given us everything we need. We need something else. And they label God something He is not. Then they take this label they have put on God and they worship Him that way. And they've broken the first and second commandments. Worshiping a God other than the one revealed in Scripture and worshiping a God in a way that He has not required. They become idolaters. So this is not something that we can play around with. The integrity of our worship depends on the sufficiency of Scripture. And the authority and sufficiency of Scripture are being attacked and pushed aside all around us. So are we going to be a people who are deeply rooted in the sufficiency and authority of Scripture alone? Every Tuesday, I go through all the families in this church by name. Moms, dads, husbands, wives, kids, grandkids, visitors who come that I've met, and I pray for you. When I pray for this church, I pray that we would be guided, submitted to, and loyal to upholding Scripture alone. If Paul says something that is outside of Scripture, we should be a people so deeply rooted in it that even the most shy person here could come to him and say, Paul, I know you're a pastor. I know you love the Word of God. I heard you say this. Is that really what you meant? Because what about what the Scripture says here? If I say something incorrectly up here, something that is heresy, I would expect somebody, most likely Roy, to come to me and say, Hey, you're an idiot. The Scripture doesn't say that. We don't listen to you, Jordan. We listen to Scripture. I expect the women of this church to be holding each other accountable so much that if you'd see someone out and you would hear the way they were talking as you walked by, you would give them a call later on that day and say, Hey, I heard you conducting yourself in a way contrary to Scripture. I would love to get together with you and study to see what the Scripture has to say about this. The whole counsel of God is here. I want to sum up these two sermons by turning to several phrases from our confession. And after you hear these phrases, you're going to say, wow, why did he preach for two hours instead of just read this? That's the point of a confession. So let me read this, and I want you to listen. If you haven't listened to any of this, listen to this. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient certain and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed, depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore, Scripture is to be received because it is the Word of God. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Sola Scriptura. Inspired, without error, Perfect, impossible of containing error, necessary, clear, and sufficient 
This is sola scriptura. This is the foundation that Jesus has promised to build the church on. And this is the truth that we are to hold up. Let's pray together.